Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I am doing very well, Sarah. Uh, seems like it's been a minute since we've talked. How are you doing? It has been a minute. I'm doing well. Um, I'm enjoying the sunshine, but I feel like this is just kind of teasing us. Yeah, hopefully, ho- hopefully this storm that, that's coming misses us, uh, you know, for the most part, like they're saying, although I think the last one was supposed to miss us and it didn't. Yeah, we're protected by the Oma Dome, though. Have you heard that's, about that? Yeah, that's what they said. I don't know. I, I When I was sh- out there moving eight inches of snow <laughs> off of my driveway, I didn't feel like the Oma Dome did its job last uh, week. True. That's true. That's why I have kids that are like send them out to shovel the driveway. It was great. And you have to leave the house. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens. But it sounds like our neighbors to the north are going to get a lot of snow. Ugh. I could keep rolling with this 50 degrees and sunny. Yeah. Well, the best part of it is, is that it's so late in the winter now, there's almost spring that, you know, even if it gets cold or we get snow, it usually doesn't stick around for too awful long anymore because we're almost to March. Yeah. Although there have been some big storms in March. There have, but again, it usually doesn't last like, like if it was a big storm in December, you're looking forward to multiple weeks of cold. I don't think we have that anymore. Yeah. No matter what the groundhog says. (laughs) Silly groundhog. (laughs) so what's going on today well today we have a returning guest dr jonathan Ryder, and he's here to talk about a specific project that he's been working on specific to antibiotics which i know absolutely nothing about so uh rick would you like to introduce it a little bit yeah so um thanks jonathan glad to have you with us again yeah glad to be back thanks so much for having me this is your first visit with us as a faculty member as opposed to as a fellow, right? That is correct. It was uh, not quite a year ago, I think I was on the show. So Yeah, congratulations. That's awesome. Happy to have you back. So Thank you. Um, one of the things that's big in antimicrobial stewardship, and uh, it has lots of implications in lots of different things, is looking how we're using antibiotics um, in terms of the route that we administer them, whether it be intravenously, which is kind of the traditional way that we've treated many long-term infections like bone and joint infections, for example, or heart valve infections or bloodstream infections that for years and years and years, uh, we've always thought that we had to treat those intravenously. And that's the way that I was trained. And this is a part of the world that uh, I'm really having to adjust my practice style in, which is it's I think I'm going uh, kicking and dragging and screaming towards it. But um, as more people like Dr. Ryder tell us that oral antibiotics can be just as effective, if not even more effective, because they have maybe less side effects, less issues, less problems. Um, And maybe people will be more apt to take them, uh, don't have to worry with lines, get them out of the hospital faster. So lots of pluses to this. So we're hoping that he'll enlighten us on a lot of those things today. Yeah, exactly, Rick. That's a, a great overview of kind of the the state of the issue, I guess. And 
it's it's fascinating as someone who's coming into a field and sort of uh being introduced to evidence um and, and really trying to figure out why we do things and what's really interesting about medicine is and in particular a field like infectious diseases is that a lot of things that we do are based on because we do it that way is basically the reason why we do it um and it's it's actually interesting because the field of infectious diseases is unique where it wasn't that long ago where we didn't have effective treatments for a lot of things like bloodstream infections bone and joint infections and then heart valve infections known as endocarditis and when antibiotics came into play we rapidly cured and improved things so dramatically that it was it was obvious it didn't require uh well-designed uh studies in order to prove that these things were effective because the um the mortality of something like endocarditis was basically a hundred percent so anyone who survived after receiving a drug was deemed a success um but the world has changed a lot uh, since the 1930s, 40s, 50s, uh, when penicillin and the, the sulfa drugs first came out. And our kind of standards for evidence have changed along with that. And so a lot of these therapies that were introduced and were wildly successful, we've just continued to use them because we know they work. And um, the question is, is do other things work just as well as what we've done in the past? And to what extent? And I think that's really where we're at with the, the question of oral versus um, IV antibiotics. So up to this point, then, it's been a case of it's not broke, so don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. You know, for a lot of these conditions, I mean, things like endocarditis still are um, really bad infections to have, but comparatively to comparatively to the past, our, our treatments are much more effective than they used to be. And so we've gotten pretty comfortable with the regimens that we use. And so we've continued to use them. And so, yeah, why change? If we know it, it works pretty well, uh, why would we risk doing something different? That's, the, that's kind of the question, I think, exactly as you phrased it. In particular, we know that IV antibiotics, um, because they're delivered directly into the bloodstream, get really high drug levels and are very effective at killing bacteria. And in the past, oral antibiotics have not always been effective. Uh, the the old sulfa drugs and um, the early penicillins, uh, not to get too much into the weeds, but had a lot of trouble with dosing and drug levels to kill bacteria in the bloodstream. And so success rates were pretty low uh, historically with those early antibiotics. And so the IV penicillin drugs uh, in the past were kind of the the most effective agents that we had, and so we used them. But again, like I mentioned, we've had a whole host of new antibiotics, in particular oral antibiotics that have been developed since that point in time, that have very different uh, pharmacologic properties that allow them to be, uh, they basically produce similar bloodstream levels of drug as our IV uh, antibiotics. And so... Now the question is, is do we really need to be giving things via vein if we can use the kind of more natural oral route?
Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating that there are humans alive today that were born before we actually had widespread use of antibiotics still. I mean, in, in, the, in human history, I mean, we've had these for such a short period of time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's an evolving problem and something that's, um, you know, is rapidly changing in this kind of, uh, uh, not to use uh, kind of war terms too much, but this battle between uh, humans and bacteria where we come up with new treatments and bacteria evolve new resistance patterns. And then we come up with new treatments and we kind of go back and forth. And uh, we've had to develop a whole uh, armamentarium, so to speak, because of uh, just how good the bacteria are at uh, evading our our uh, interventions that we've attempted yeah so let's talk a little bit so there's infection prevention and then there's a kind of a little spin-off that deals with the antibiotics that's antimicrobial stewardship it's not directly infection prevention but lots of people that do one thing kind of do both and they kind of go a bit hand in hand um, in terms of preventing some of the serious infections in your mind how do you view what antimicrobial stewardship is just for our listeners real quick yeah, absolutely. So, you know, antimicrobial stewardship, uh, the way, you know, I usually like to think about it is using the right drug for the right bug or bacteria at the right dose for the right duration uh, uh, for via the right route. So there's kind of like those, I think that's five different components there. And so you really want to make sure that whatever drug you're choosing effectively kills the bacteria that you give it for a long enough period of time that it eliminates the infection, that the level of the drug that you're giving is effective for that particular bacteria. And then you always have to think about, well, does it need to be given IV or does it need to be given um, by mouth? And so uh, we want to optimize all of those things based on the individual characteristics of the patient. And, and that's really, I think, what um, stewardship is. And by doing those things, um, and, and I guess the one the one I missed there was right diagnosis. So you want to actually make sure that they have an infection. And so if we only treat infections and we always give the right doses for the right durations, it will help to decrease our risk of um, antimicrobial resistance. So not only improving the individual patient's outcome, but also um, decreasing uh, the risk of multi-drug resistant bacteria from spreading to other patients, which uh, my colleagues that work closely in infection uh, prevention are always uh, aiming to do as well. Yeah, so I remember not too long ago, we were treating things like, let's say, a hospital-acquired pneumonia. So a pneumonia that somebody gets in the hospital or a ventilator-associated pneumonia, somebody that's on a breathing machine gets pneumonia. We're treating those for weeks and weeks and weeks. So one of the first steps in antimicrobial stewardship that I've seen is in addition to your bug drug match, make sure you're on the right antibiotic for the right uh, uh organism and it gets there and you know treating the infection appropriately it was in duration of therapy so what can you say what's happened with duration of therapy for things as we've actually done studies i always tell the the learners on rotation with me that id does things in fives and sevens because we have five fingers on a hand and there's seven days in a week and that's how we did our durations of therapy because it was easy to count uh, not necessarily based on a whole lot of science yeah absolutely there's this whole um uh, movement uh, called the shorter is better movement, which is basically trying to figure out what is the best duration of antibiotics for a whole host of different infections. 
And largely, we've seen that shorter courses of antibiotics are equally effective, and then that reduces our risk of toxicity and the development of uh, drug resistance developing. So we've seen that in pneumonia and urinary tract infection and um, a, a whole host of uh, uh, the intra-abdominal infection just kind of all across the board for wide-ranging conditions and bacteria uh, with a few notable exceptions, actually, where we found actually some longer courses of, of treatment are are better. But yeah, there's this, you know, how did we end up with the number of days that we treat these infections? There's, uh, yeah, seven days in a week. Some call that Constantine units since uh, Constantine was, uh, I think, the Roman emperor who decided that seven is the number of days in a week. And then others say the the number of metacarpals on the hominid hand, uh, which is five. Um, I've also heard football scores, which is good here in Nebraska. So uh, three, seven, 10, 14, 21, uh, 42, et cetera. So uh, depending on how you think of it, but they're all arbitrary. Um, for many infections, we don't know if nine versus 10 days is better. And probably we'll have a hard time figuring that out. But many of the times when we compare two weeks to one week, of treatment, we found that um, uh, shorter is better for those common things. So this might be a really dumb question, but you've talked about oral and IV routes of delivery. Are there any other delivery routes? Like, is there an antibiotic patch? Great question. <laughs> and you're going to make me think a little bit here. But uh, yes, we do have um, intramuscular antibiotics that are longer lasting, although I would say not used very commonly, uh, only for kind of a select few um, conditions. And I don't know of any patches. Rick, you can correct me uh, nope, if I'm not wrong, aware of any patches either. No, no patches yet uh, within the <laughs> HIV realm. They're, they are working on long-acting preparations that may be able to deliver through a, a patch or a um, uh, intradermal um, device, kind of like some of the birth control modalities that could deliver drug for uh, months to years over time. And and there are now longer acting uh, antibiotics given IV, but uh, a, sing a single or a couple doses can last weeks to months at a time. So we are developing other um, routes of delivery or durations of therapy um, that are not necessarily daily uh, pills or, or daily injections. So there is there is some work in that area. And there are some that we can instill directly into the place that we're looking for it. So sometimes uh, for pulmonary infections, for example, you can do inhaled antibiotics. For um, intraperitoneal antibiotics, for people on peritoneal dialysis, you can put the antibiotics right in the fluid. Sometimes for bad meningitis infections, you can put it right into that fluid as well. We're using traditional antibiotics in that situation, but we can direct instill them in the area um, that, that may have some benefit. That's usually done by an expert like Dr. Ryder and not uh, amateurs out there. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I'll say there are also, of course, uh, a topical agents, uh, some that are given for eye infections, ear infections, um, skin infections that are, are delivered to, which is not something that I do a lot of as an infectious diseases doctor, but are commonly used by my colleagues uh, that treat those uh, areas of the body. So we talked a little bit in the beginning about maybe some of the benefits to using oral therapy. In your mind, kind of 
what uh, what do you think and how that fits into stewardship uh, and, and how that exactly works and looks? Yeah, so the uh, oral route is really interesting and, and trying to figure out, you know, when is the right time to do this and what are the benefits, I think are, are great questions. So whenever we give intravenous antibiotics, they have to be delivered through some sort of uh, uh, access uh to the vein, right? So via some sort of line. Um, and that in the hospital usually consists of a, a peripheral IV, which have some complications. They they oftentimes get um, blocked off and need exchanged every few days or so. Um, so they don't last long term. And so when patients are treated for some of these more serious infections with IV antibiotics, they oftentimes uh, require some sort of larger uh, catheter or, or uh, line placement, which have their own risk associated with them. Whenever you have some sort of line that's connected to your bloodstream, that line's at risk of getting contaminated, and then patients can get bloodstream infections as a result of their line. Um, these lines can clot off in the bloodstream and, and lead to um, uh, more, you know, serious clotting. Uh, those lines can sometimes... Uh, uh, just stop working and need to be replaced. And, and sometimes they get more superficial infections around the skin. And so there's, there's associated complications of having a line in place uh, completely independent of the antibiotics. So whatever benefit there may be uh, with intravenous antibiotics, and I will say there's really no good data showing that IV antibiotics are better than really good bioavailable modern antibiotics that we use. Um, the the line associated uh, may detract from any benefits that there are with those IV antibiotics. So the oral route is also um, quite a bit cheaper, generally speaking. Uh, many of the medications are have been around for a long time and are not terribly expensive. And they also don't require uh, nursing and home visit care that usually comes with having a, a line in place. And so um, there's certainly a cost component and a tolerability um, a component to that as well. So that's um, some of the reasons why the, the oral route is available. The question is, is when is the right time to do that? And so one of the um, things that is uh, talked about in this kind of oral versus IV comes from uh, Brad Spelberg. He's one of the kind of leading leading people in this. And so when when should someone be transitioned to oral antibiotics. And I'm going to stop right there and just say that I'm saying transition on purpose because we frequently say step down to, to oral antibiotics. But step down actually confers that there's something different or worse about oral antibiotics. And so we're not actually stepping down because we don't have strong evidence that it's any worse. We're just transitioning. So people who come into the hospital and are severely ill they're oftentimes not uh, eating or drinking. Um, they may uh, be needing blood pressure support and IV fluids. They have uncontrolled infection sources. Uh, they actively have um, uh, a bloodstream infection. These patients weren't using the intravenous route. Uh, they may not have a, a functional gut to take pills. They may not be awake and be taking pills. Um, uh, their sort of uh, physiology is just kind of different in the acute stages of illness. So you kind of, it's reasonable to use IV antibiotics to get through that very acute stage in the hospital. 
but then there comes a point in time uh, that it's appropriate to transition to oral antibiotics. And Brad Spoberg's criteria, along with many of his colleagues that have written about this, is that the patient is clinically and um, hemodynamically stable. Their blood pressure and their heart rate are, are improved. That uh, whatever the source of the infection has been taken care of, the bloodstream is cleared. The uh, the gut is working. People can absorb the the pills adequately. That you have a, a pill that works against the the bacteria that's at play, and then there's no other sort of uh, factors at play that uh, would warrant um, IV therapy over oral antibiotic therapy. For example, I had a patient I just saw the other day that said, yeah, I probably won't take pills. It'd be better if you just gave me IV therapy. So that would be a decent reason to give them IV therapy if they won't take pills for some reason. So, Very, very interesting stuff. So um, so when looking back and thinking, I mean, I can think of a lot of things that we've traditionally treated with long courses of oral antibiotics. You mentioned your score of 42, and hopefully Nebraska gets there sometime this coming year. But um Six weeks is something we used for bone and joint infections, for example. Let me just throw that out there as, as the first example. Um, you know, and we've always felt that we had to give IV because of the 100% bioavailability and the ability to get high levels into a, a place that most adults don't perfuse as well, bone, especially bone that may be marginally healthy in the first place. So what's the information that we can say about transitioning to oral antibiotics, I use the word transitioning instead of stepping down. Just at your uh, uh, request, there. <laughs> you have to start doing that all the time now, Rick. I know, I do. <laughs> yeah, the data for bone and joint infection uh, continues to improve uh, as far as the use of oral antimicrobials. So there is a, a recent paper by by Bradsburg by Brad Spellberg and his colleagues looking at this. And there's actually been over eight uh, randomized controlled trials looking at this, showing that oral antibiotics are uh, just as good, if not better than IV antibiotics in, in some situations, including um, things like uh, hardware infections, prosthetic joint infections, some of the harder infections to treat. And the largest of this was the Oviva trial, which came out a few years ago uh, out of Europe. And so there's uh, increasing evidence that these are equally effective and actually there's less complications um, as a result. Uh, there's, there's certainly side effects of both uh, IV and oral medications, but there are those extra side effects um, uh, somewhere between about 7 and 13% of the time is what he cites in the paper associated with using IV therapy people getting skin infections, uh, blood clots, et cetera, associated with those lines. And so there's evidence it's just as effective and also that it's safer, uh, which is, I think, a pretty good reason to give oral antibiotics. And I'd say, generally speaking, most patients uh, prefer to take pills as opposed to going home with a line in place that is difficult uh, to uh, maneuver, difficult to keep clean, uh, et cetera. And really, actually you know, impairs some people from doing their jobs and, and returning to work and, and going back to doing the life uh, that they wanted to, which, you know, six weeks is a long, long period of time. I mean, this is a revolutionary change in how we're treating these complicated infections that, um, you know, and they do have 
significant stakes as well, right? So you're treating somebody's bone and joint infection in their ankle or something. And if the treatment fails, then, you know, they may be looking at an amputation or something significant, a big change in their life. But the, the data from the UK shows that the outcomes were really no different. So how is this being adopted in the US? Have you seen it being used more locally? Uh, do you have anything anecdotal reports of what's going on with this? I'm sure that people are still a little slow to adopt it like me. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's it is the, the stakes are high, right? You know, these these are real issues with our patients. And the rates of failure are not necessarily low where antibiotics don't always work, but there's a variety of reasons that happens. And unfortunately, when um, we use IV antibiotics and it doesn't work, we say, oh, well, maybe they needed more surgery or uh, we didn't get good cultures or something happened. But then when we use oral antibiotics, we automatically say, oh, it's because we gave them oral antibiotics. That's why it's failed. But we wouldn't have known that the the treatment wouldn't have worked uh, either if we would have used IV antibiotics for that particular patient. So I will say that I think it's it's coming around. We have some people who probably do it more than others, just anecdotally. It, but it is it is slow change. These these new evidences in medicine take a while to adopt and utilize and sort of change the framework. And I think as a as a clinician, it's really easy to say, oh yeah, we'll just put in a line and you'll go home on this antibiotic, and that I don't have to worry about this side effect or this drug effectiveness. Uh, but for patients, if you look at it from their perspective, I think it's uh, really important uh, to take that into account and the, the benefits that they have of taking a pill. And you may have to change their oral regimen. They may not uh, do well with it because of, the, of different side effects and, and these things. But it, we know that certain uh, single therapy or even combination therapies are very effective for these infections. And my personal practice is I just talk to patients and say, you know, some some people may give you uh, an IV antibiotic for this. Uh, some people may give you an oral antibiotic. I think an oral antibiotic is very effective and, you know, make sure that they're okay with that. And then we go with it. And sometimes they say, you know, I'd rather have IV. And I think that's reasonable for the individual patient. Um, but it's 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 starting to pick up, I think, a little bit. What kind of infections outside of the bone and joint infections that we we're talking about have been looked at for um, early or complete transition to oral antibiotics? Yeah, so quite a few. I, I would say the next big one is bloodstream infections or bacteremias. And in particular, um, due to things like uh, gram-negative organisms uh, like E. coli and Klebsiella, and then also things like streptococcal species and, and even some of the enterococcus infections, depending on the, the source and the severity. But uh, certainly increasing comfort with, with doing that routinely, as long as you're using uh, oral antibiotics that are that get really good bloodstream levels, of which there's many. Um, so that's I think that's, you know, getting picked up pretty well. It's, it's getting better. Um, and then the... Other thing is endocarditis, which is a you know the bloodstream infection that involves a heart valve, and there's actually increasing evidence for this uh, with a large randomized trial also out of Europe called the Poet Poet trial, in which they gave two oral antibiotics to everyone and compared that to IV, and actually have basically found 
those patients do better. So a recent, uh, recent publication at five years found about uh, 12% lower uh, all-cause mortality in the, in the group that received the oral antibiotics as opposed to the IV antibiotics. And while that's not entirely clear those, why that difference exists, it may be due to those complications of IV antibiotics, as we discussed. So it's uh, increasingly becoming clear in that condition that we can use oral antibiotics. I will say the uptake on that is is very low, except for usually in very extenuating circumstances at this time. There's lots of subtle things about that trial that I think caution many clinicians from uptaking the results directly into their practice, but the data is improving in that regard. And then the one that I think there's a lot of debate about is staph, uh, Staphylococcus aureus uh, bloodstream infection. And this has historically been an infection that the dogma has been, you always have to give IV antibiotics no matter what. And I, this was taught to me and I've probably taught it to people uh, even in my very short time uh, as a fellow and uh, as a faculty member. But there's going to be data coming out in this. It's being studied really well. There's at least two randomized controlled trials that are being done for this. One's the Sabato trial, which looks at low-risk uh, Staph aureus bacteremia. And the early results show that there's no difference, although it hasn't been published. And then there's a larger trial called the SNAP trial, um, that's uh, a worldwide collaborative looking at a transition after about a week or two weeks to oral therapy. And that trial is probably going to take a little while longer for us to get any results. But after someone has cleared their bacteremia and they are their source is controlled and they're clinically improved, I think the principles are probably going to be the case that it will be safe to switch to oral therapy, but it's going to take a lot longer to uptake that just given the the practice that's been in place for a long time. Do you have any plans for doing any trials, Dr. Ryder? Not at this point in time, but at oh, uh, some point in my career, I would I would love to get involved. So I I enjoy reading about these things and learning, but it, it turns out there is a, a lot uh, involved in, in getting a, a trial up and going and funded. And I am still learning all the many nuances <laughs> from that. Uh, because I, it's it's it sounds simple to just you know try something, but it is much more complicated than that uh, in in practical reality. So in twenty twenty three, what it sounds like is many, maybe most infections can be treated as effectively with oral uh, as opposed to IV antibiotics, with the exceptions of maybe Staph aureus bloodstream infection maybe some endocarditis, maybe we're still working on that. And then I would, would you add maybe central nervous system infections where we have to cross the blood brain barrier? Or has there been any data in that as well? You know, I am not, uh, not aware of a lot of data with central nervous, uh, uh, central nervous system infections in particular, at least as far as well-designed trials, um, uh, comparing those things. Um, you know, I think probably given the severity, many people will be quite cautious to try that approach. Although, uh, certainly for some things like, uh, viral meningitis and encephalitis infections, I think we do use oral antivirals at times for those. And, uh, even, uh, fungal infections, we use oral antifungals over the long term for those 
types of infections. And so I think the principles are still the same. The The problem, of course, with central nervous, um, central nervous system infections is which antibiotics actually get across the, the blood-brain barrier and what kind of levels do they achieve and how clinically improved is that patient. And there's just a lot less options, I think, um, when it comes to oral antibiotics in that regard. But that said, I think it's certainly possible. Something like linazolid does a pretty good job of getting into the brain, and I think there's some that would probably use that for those infections. Yeah, and you know, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty as far as, in, in particular, relating uh, Staphylococcus aureus uh, bloodstream infections and then endocarditis due to that organism. I think uh, a lot of hesitancy within the infectious disease community still, um, and and uh, some would argue that we already have enough evidence to actually adopt that change. Uh, but I think many are still going to want more evidence before they're willing to do that. Um, and that has a lot to do with how severe the illness is and how high the risk of um, a recurrent infection is, even when treated with uh, IV antibiotics. So again, when when the antibiotics don't work, uh, oftentimes the blame is put on the route if it is oral. Uh, whenever it's given IV, we blame something else. Um, it's been my experience. And so until we get a good comparison between those, I think people will be hesitant to, to change. Getting into the weeds a little bit deeper here. Um, you know, there's a lot of oral antibiotics that show up on a antimicrobial susceptibility report. And so when you're looking at that, um, let's say for a gram negative, uh, San E. coli, um, you know, if you can use a quinolone, I think you're going to say, you know, a quinolone is a great choice because it's highly bioavailable, easy to take. You could take it once a day with many of the antimicrobials that are available now and be fine. What happens if you don't have, let's say, a, a quinolone and you don't have Bactrim? How safe do you feel with taking a penicillin orally or a cephalosporin orally that traditionally we've been taught don't get absorbed as well? And there's always been concerns about that. Yeah, I really think it depends on which which cephalosporin and penicillin that you're talking about um, and what dose you use, use them for. So some of them like amoxicillin and cephalexin, cephadroxyl get pretty decent levels. And so um, I feel a little bit more comfortable with those uh, uh, beta-lactam antibiotics when used at the high end of their dose, about like a gram uh, three times a day. But the oral um, penicillins, the oral uh, second and third generation cephalosporins, their their blood levels are, are not very good. Um, and so I usually uh, shy far away from those and would feel more comfortable using uh, intravenous antibiotics if those are truly the only options left. Um, it, just because they're, like I said, they're not well absorbed into the bloodstream and uh, they're giving low-dose beta-lactams is definitely something that uh, can result in, in clinical failure. Do you think that this... Um you know, changing up the routes of delivery will be something that will become standard practice in the future? Yeah, I think I think we're already there. I mean, in a, in a lot of regards. Now, whether people are doing it routinely uh, is, is a separate sort of issue. But 
Uh, from an antimicrobial stewardship perspective, we are increasingly trying to um, switch people with these sort of easier to treat bloodstream infections to oral antibiotics sooner. The, the bottom line is that people get out of the hospital faster and they don't get as many um, complications from those line infections. And so we should be uh, doing this because it's better patient care. Um, and and so that's definitely something we're working on adopting. People are, you know, all, all new things are slow to adopt for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think increasing education awareness of this will help adopt it in practice. But it's going to come in waves and it's going to start with the the easier to treat infections before the harder to treat infections, almost certainly. And then someday you'll be like, I remember when. <laughs> yes, that would be great. Yeah, we can say, <laughs> I remember when we used to give IV antibiotics to everyone. And, and what were we doing back then? Um, you know, uh, certainly if history uh, was slightly different and we developed some of these newer, more effective antibiotics first thing, uh, this whole thing may never have evolved the way that it did. Kind of the early antibiotics weren't great to take by mouth. And so maybe if we would have developed a little bit different ones, who knows how human history could have worked out because we might have been effectively treating these with oral antibiotics all along. Um, of course, we never will really know, but it, it does make you wonder. Um, and, I, you know, I wonder about what new antibiotics that we may develop in the future that, that change these things. But uh, it's it's certainly fascinating to watch the evolution of this for sure. It is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. So um, in our state, we have infectious disease physicians in about, I don't know, four or five cities maybe. Um, and so there's a lot of practitioners that are in areas that don't have ID docs and, you know, and are kind of, uh, you know, doing a great job taking care of people and doing the best they can. But if they're interested in maybe looking at how do I, you know, maybe I don't need to treat this IV, this IV uh, for this infection. I can use something oral. What resources can they use or how can they reach out and get some more information or training in, in this? That's, an, that's another great question. You know, I think one thing I will say is work closely with your clinical pharmacist that you have, um, depend, depending on their own comfort level. But Anytime you're going to treat a serious infection, like a bloodstream infection, bone and joint infection, uh, endocarditis, you really need to make sure that the drug that you choose is an effective one. As we discussed, some some of the drugs are not the right choice to treat bloodstream infections. We, we haven't talked about it yet, but for example, uh, the tetracyclines like doxycycline, not really a good uh, bloodstream agent. Uh, uh, something like azithromycin, not a good agent to use for bloodstream infections. And then lower doses of, of some of the more common penicillins and cephalosporins, not effective. And, and sometimes what you may read in a typical uh, book uh, on, on drug dosing doesn't have the doses um, that are high enough to really treat these infections regularly. So I would definitely recommend working with a pharmacist. Um Certainly, there's increasing literature available uh, showing the evidence of, of some of these things. Um, and then, you know, I think continuing medical education, going to conferences and, and watching uh, uh, webinars. Uh, I can give a plug for the uh, antimicrobial stewardship uh, conference here in the state of Nebraska would be a great thing to attend and interact with colleagues and try to figure out kind of what, what they're doing. And I think uh, 
Let's see, Sarah. Is that June third? I think is maybe when that's Yeah. coming up here this Oh, summer. let me look at let me look at my calendar. I have it on So, there. uh, I don't know that we're doing any sessions on IV or oral antibiotics. I'm not involved in the planning of that uh, event, but certainly um, that is something that should be uh, it would would be a good venue for interacting with the people that that discuss these things. Yeah, and for anyone that's interested, it is Friday, June 2nd, all day long at the Embassy Suites in La Vista here in Omaha. So you all should come see us. We should do a live show from the Antimicrobial Stewardship Summit. We definitely should. We can get Dr. Ryder and Dr. Van and <laughs> some of our wonderful pharmacists involved. That would be terrific. that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, that would be good. <clears throat> yeah, so I think getting somebody that understands the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics of the meds you're using is obviously important. So if you if if you're looking at this and thinking about this and unsure what drugs are good choices um for a particular infection, then talking to your pharmacist, otherwise reaching out to resources that we have here can certainly provide some advice as well in terms of what uh, what we might think for a particular infection in in certain circumstances And here in Nebraska, we have, everyone's familiar with Nebraska ICAP, but we also have our sister group is Nebraska ASAP, which is the Antimicrobial Stewardship Assessment and Promotion Program. So if you have questions, we can get you hooked up with an ID pharmacist that can help out. Um, and we also have the resources through ICAP and ASAP to talk to our medical directors. Yeah, and one of the things that we look at um, uh, with antimicrobial stewardship programs is actually having automatic conversion policies for IV antibiotics to oral antibiotics, um, in which case there's many antibiotics that there is really no difference in how effective they are at all, uh, whether they're given IV or oral. And this is not necessarily for bloodstream infections, but just kind of for any number of regular, you know, pneumonia, urinary tract infections. And so... It's not uncommon that um, uh, IV medications are transitioned to oral medications as a patient improves um, through basically policies that the pharmacist can enact um, to help uh, improve patient care by not using unnecessary IV antibiotics, at least in the hospital. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, that's one of the easier uh, low-hanging fruit to start if you're starting an antimicrobial stewardship program is just looking at conversions from IV to oral and just even checking bug-drug matches and mismatches so you can um, narrow down your initial broad-spectrum antibiotics in, in, you know, two days roughly once you get cultures back. And so if people are looking for some of the basics for antimicrobial stewardship or whatever, then reaching out to ASAP, I think is a tremendous resource to help get things going. Absolutely. I'm sure Jenna will be very excited to hear that we're promoting her program. And Jenna does some really great work <laughs> uh, for the state of Nebraska. So, yeah. And I'm sure uh, Dr. Ryder took some phone calls as a fellow from uh, people looking for advice as well. So there's always some physicians on call that can uh, provide peer-to-peer uh, -peer assistance in these sorts of complicated infections as well. Yeah, absolutely. Always willing to uh to help out whenever uh, resources are narrow. I think, you know, a large portion of the United States does not have access uh, to an infectious disease 
uh, provider in the state of Nebraska um, certainly is is in that boat as well. You know anything else we didn't cover? I know I know I've been writing for lots of amoxicillin grams TID and cephalexin grams TID and as much doxycycline as I as I can handle, trying to you know treat those uh, osteomyelitis with those oral antibiotics. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we're we're learning more and more uh, about these drugs and their success rates and how effective and and really trying to learn about uh, each drug individually and and what doses are appropriate and and try to nail down these things. And uh, many are working in this field, and I, I hope we have more and more data to really support the decisions that we make um, uh, as we go forward here. One last question as far as using, has there been any differences in C. difficile rates with oral versus IV, or has that been pretty much the same? Good question that I don't know the answer to um, uh, off the top of my head. Um, I I don't know of any um, particular reason why it might be one way or the other, just based on the different drugs have different rates of C. diff, kind of depending on their spectrum of activity. And so... Some of the oral antibiotics certainly would have less effect in that regard, and some of the IV antibiotics would certainly have more effect in that regard. But I'm not sure if you compare the same drug, whether it's given by mouth or via IV, that there's there's much of a difference. Yeah, I think the quinolones would be the high-risk oral ones that you would think of, but many of the other oral ones you would think would not be as high as like a third or fourth generation cephalosporin, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So I think... Uh, in that regard, if you're kind of narrowing your spectrum of activity, it uh, it would certainly be less risk of, of C. diff in comparison, but kind of just all drug dependent, I think, primarily. And doxy versus even cefazolin, you would think there would be, you know, a difference there. Yeah, I mean, we know doxy is probably protective against C. diff, at least we think, and actually maybe linazolid too. Uh, there's even some data showing that it may have some very mild protection, at least it certainly doesn't induce C. diff um, from what we understand, which is good. Well, I can't wait, wait to uh, read your, about your clinical trial that you're going to have in like five years on this. So <laughs> I'm going to have to get started working on that here very soon. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Yeah, it's going to be a, a, a study of uh, uh, usual standard of care versus oral antibiotics for left-sided uh, staph aureus endocarditis. Yeah, it would be great if we could get a, a large U.S. trial uh, showing that uh, certainly our patient population in the U.S. is slightly different than they see in Europe, and we see a lot more um, methicillin-resistant staph aureus MRSA uh, than is in Europe, which was almost non-existent in their, in their trial. Um, and so uh, certainly I think there's there's a a gap that needs filled, filled in that regard. So that would be great. You guys aren't busy or anything, are you? Just get on that right away. <laughs> um, no comment. <laughs> I love listening to what you guys are doing here. And it's great hearing about all the different things that are going on in the world of infectious diseases and infection prevention. I always learn from you guys and uh, the many uh, guests you have on the show. So thank you guys. Appreciate it. 
Yeah, and thanks uh, for joining us. And if anybody listening has any experience or experiences or uh, interest in this, please reach out to us in you know whatever way you listen to us, uh, whether it be by Twitter or by email or something so that we can can hear how uh, people are doing and approaching this because it's certainly been really a change in the last several years it's not uh, like this has been 20 years or so it's really been pretty recent where this has really picked up a lot of steam and is really going to revolutionize how we effectively care for patients with complex infectious disease problems yeah i hope we get lots of emails It'll be awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jonathan. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. And hopefully this is uh, helpful to the listeners out there. I'm sure it will be. Thank you for joining us. Bye, everyone. To all of our listeners out there, make sure you join us for the next episode of Dirty Drinks and follow us on Twitter to join in the conversation. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.